Hello and welcome to We Recover Loudly, the podcast shaking up conversations about addiction, recovery and drinking cultures in hospitality. This podcast aims to break down the walls of silence around addiction and recovery in the industry. The episodes will be a mix of personal stories from myself and from other sober champions with experience of working in hospitality, as well as interviews with hospitality leaders who are providing training and resources to assist in creating sustainable workplace environment for you and your teams. We will discuss mental health, stress and other challenges in the industry that can lead to addiction, challenging the work hard, play hard mentality. So let's turn it up and get loud, because when we recover loudly, we stop others from dying quietly. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, The Burnt Chef Project. The Burnt Chef Project is a globally recognised, not-for-profit social enterprise. They're fully committed to making the hospitality profession healthier, more sustainable, by focusing on people's well-being first. Launched in May 2019, the Burnt Chef Project was set up with the sole intention of eradicating mental health stigma within hospitality. They offer free resources online, such as wellness action plans and team checking guidelines. You can also book mental health first aid courses through the website, as well as other bespoke training courses for your hospitality team. I've been an ambassador with the organisation for over 18 months and I'm proud to be a part of such an inspiring and forward-thinking community. For more information, check out their website and their socials. Links are all there in the show notes. Right, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to We Recover Loudly with your host Shell. This week's bonus episode is the first episode in a series discussing red flags. So these red flags may be about your own relationship with drugs and alcohol, or they could be red flags that you've noticed in a work colleague or as an employer or a combination of all of these. So when we talk about red flags, they take on many forms depending on the situation. But if we just look at it broadly and we look at behavioral red flag, this specifically refers to patterns of behaviors or actions that may raise concerns or show you that there might be problems with the person who has recently changed their behavior. So common red flags in the workplace that might indicate that your employee is struggling or like your fellow teammate is struggling could include stuff like missing deadlines or not fulfilling their responsibility or having frequent conflicts with co-workers and superiors, being really defensive. I know that that was definitely one of my red flags. Absenteeism or being late without valid reasons, struggling just with simple communication, you know, not very good at listening, getting quite aggressive when they talk to you, being unreliable, being inconsistent. And, you know, it can go as extreme as engaging in dishonest behavior. That's when we start to talk about theft. These red flags could be described as quite obvious ones to look out for. And, you know, indeed, they can indicate an issue with all sorts of things such as mental health problems, financial worries, maybe relationship things happening at home. It's not not specifically just about alcohol and drug addiction. But the red flag today I want to talk about is secrecy. 
It's interesting that issues with addiction and hospitality is often called an open secret. We all know it happens, but there is not currently really enough being done to change it. You know, there's multiple studies in hospitality journals, there's articles, documentaries, podcasts, all reporting about the pervasiveness of alcohol-related behaviours amongst hospitality employees. But, you know, despite all of those efforts to address alcohol use, you know, the problem of alcohol use and drug addiction, the hospitality industry is still ranked the highest among all industries when it comes to employees' alcohol use and drug addiction. Secrecy, wearing masks, presenting as if everything is okay. But behind that persona, we're struggling. And when I talk about showgirl shell persona, which is a persona I wore for the majority of the time I worked in hospitality, I found the bigger my secrets became, the heavier it was to wear. But while we are wearing these masks and acting like we're fine, it does make it really difficult for the people around us to realise that we have a problem. And again, like I said, this could mean a whole range of challenges, but we are going to focus today's discussion on drinking and drug taking within hospitality. The whole open secret thing in our industry, I think it makes it even harder for us to even realise we've got a problem. I mean, in my experience, my behaviours were no different to my fellow teammates on the whole until I started to become secretive myself. There's a saying that you were as sick as your secrets. And I think that's really relevant when we look at addiction. The reasons that we keep these things secret is because of the shame, because of the stigma, the overwhelming, life-consuming power addiction will have over you. So if our behavior has started to change and we're doing more things in secret, you know, it's normally a really good indication that things are potentially not going well. When I think about secrecy in terms of my drinking, it's definitely something that I did more so right at the very end. I was very secretive. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about secrecy specifically today as well is because I connected with a very dear friend who made the comment that when they listened to the podcast, I sometimes make comments such as at the end of my drinking or when I hit that rock bottom, I felt incredibly alone and that there was no one there for me. You know, there was nobody on the phone. And they made the point that that was quite unfair because there were people that were there for me, but I wasn't able to see that or take that help. And, you know, of course that really hits hard because the thing about addiction is that it needs you alone because that's where it thrives. And therefore my perception of the reality of my situation was quite skewed. I felt very alone and I felt like I'd isolated myself from people, but they may well have been reaching out and I probably wouldn't have even noticed. But I do think by the very end, however, I had successfully isolated myself from everybody, including those that were trying to help regardless of whether or not I saw that hand to help. The conversation with this friend continued and they made the comment that they never realized how bad it was because I always seemed so fine. And I think that's a really, really important point when we look at addiction, not just in hospitality, but overall, it's about how we present in our real life versus what we do when we're at home alone or, you know, whatever situation when we're alone. If we're living this double life, how can we expect our friends or our employers to offer us help? Um, We have that list of red flags I just mentioned at the beginning of the episode, but that does not mean that when we do not see those red flags, that 
that somebody isn't also still struggling. And, you know, it's really difficult because if somebody like myself, who is so good at hiding how desperately unhappy and unwell I was, where is that line of responsibility? Where's the responsibility of the employer in this situation? Why would an employer ask if I needed help when I wasn't making it obvious that I needed help? And I think that's when we start to talk about things like culture change. You know, what came first, the fact that I needed help or the fact that I didn't feel like I could ask for help when I was struggling with stress and the role that I was doing. And therefore, I went home to numb out night after night when that's when that obviously the more obvious red flags then occurred later on. And that's when I ended up losing my job because of them. But if that had been stopped way before, or if I'd had the confidence to ask for that help or the ability to ask for that help, then, you know, it wouldn't have had to, it's almost like that big red warning sign. It's like, how big and bright does it have to be before you either ask for help or somebody else gives it to you? When I spoke to Adam Hardiman and I asked, how did no one know you were taking such huge quantities of drugs and drinking so much, you know, how come no one challenged you or tried to help you? He pointed out because while he was still performing, he was delivering, well, why would they? And, you know, I think that was very true for me as well in the beginning. I was performing, I was driving sales, I was working in training and development, I was doing a good job, you know, but I almost built a rod for my own back by always being able to like achieve and therefore I felt I could never be authentic and honest about how inside I was just drowning in self-doubt and fear about my role and my ability to do a good job. The shame and stigma of saying I have a problem is huge in hospitality as well as other industries. And it definitely does stop people from asking for help. It really does. If I'd been more aware that my drinking had become secretive, would I have been able to stop myself before it got to the stage it did, I guess is the question I am posing today. If we question secretive behaviours, if we question the reasons why we're doing things, perhaps that we wouldn't do out in plain sight, you know, would that have been my own red flag that things were going wrong? So when I started drinking, it wasn't within a workplace environment. You know, it was with family, it was with friends. In my early 20s, I started to drink after work with the team. You know, we would have midnight shots together. It was all very jovial out in the open. And it was all very much kind of complicit behavior, regardless of management, regardless of the team size, regardless of the style of the establishment. You know, drinking after work, drinking during work. It was just something that happened. And yeah, it was just out there in the open for fun, for engagement, for bonding, for socializing. Or when I went home, you know, red wine would be something that was drank with a lovely meal or maybe sitting and watching the TV with my boyfriend at the time to relax. My family and I, we love good wine and I'd always buy something a little bit different or a bit special, bring it home from London with me and like we talk about it, we match it with wonderful food and it always felt like a really positive part of my identity, my love of wine, my love of cocktails, my ability to create cocktails and I used to love watching people just enjoy them and come up with recipes and educate people in wine, beer, spirits, you know, it really always felt like a really, at that point, it really was only a positive part of the work that I was doing. And I was really proud of the work that I was doing and the knowledge that I had in in that industry. When I had a breakup when I was 26, that breakup really hit me hard. And I struggled to get over that breakup for many, many years. And that was the time that I started to look at alcohol as something more 
than, you know, something that goes well, goes well with a delicious steak or, you know, something that's fun to drink with your friends. I could see that it also had this more insidious use. And that was the ability to stop my brain, you know, to numb out all the pain I was feeling from the rejection of this relationship and just quiet down my head from all those negative voices saying you're worthless, you're disgusting, you're fat, you're awful, you're never going to be anything to anybody. And that's when the drinking started to happen in secret because when I was sat alone with those thoughts, it was the only thing I could think to do to turn them off. When I was drinking, you know, in a room of people or having a lovely time with my family and I was being showgirl shell, you know, I didn't have those feelings of insecurity and worthlessness or if I was doing well at work. But if I'd made a mistake at work or if the service hadn't gone the way that we'd hoped, which happens all the time, or if there was a problem with a team member or if somebody had been fighting or things like that. When I got home, those insecurities, that feeling of worthlessness just kept on increasing and increasing. And the problem with drinking and drug taking is the more that you do them, the more worthless you feel. You know, it has like the counteractive effects. That's when my drinking when I was on my own was increasing around that time. And, you know, the next day I might wake up feeling hungover, but I would do my damnedest to make sure that I never presented that way. So I would always wake up, you know, hair done, glittery eyeshadow, big earrings, dressed for the next shift, looking all fancy. Um, you know, I almost prided myself on ensuring that I always looked impeccable, regardless of how I was feeling on the inside, which would be horrendous from a lack of sleep, from the poison that was still going through my veins from all of that excessive alcohol and from the anxiety, the fear of being caught out. In a way, I used to present as fine the next day because I almost felt if I didn't, I had failed at being able to drink like everyone else or more like what I perceived everyone else was drinking and, and how they weren't feeling hungover. And yeah, I, I didn't realize that I felt that way about it actually until just then. But I think I used to feel a grand sense of failure for being hungover the next day. And that was another reason I would be more secretive in what I was doing. The challenge with hospitality and with secrecy around drinking is that we can do it out in the open. You know, we can hide it in plain sight. We can drink during shift. We can drink after shift. You know, God, I've worked in places where we've gotten to work to start your shift and lined up on the back bar, there's like eight espresso martinis that were all ready for us to smash back before we'd even filled up the ice wells. And there's almost this outward acceptability that we all drink, but we can function and this is all fun and it's revelry and it's excitement. We don't necessarily show the darker side of the reality of those drinking times because you know it's always just push push happy happy smile smile drink drink customers customers through the door customers come first so for me I would then go home buy a bottle of wine on the way because you know actually another thing I really struggled with was the extremity of the intense socialization of my workplace versus the intense isolation of being at home with just my thoughts alone at night. And the problem with that one bottle of wine after work was 
over the years what started out that way maybe that bottle of wine would last a couple of nights or if I was living with friends at the time a bottle of wine would be shared amongst us that then became two bottles of wine that we would share and then it was three and then it escalated and then I started to buy an extra bottle of red wine and I would keep that in my backpack and not tell my housemates I had it so after we drunk together I could go to my room and then drink so this is why when I said if I'd maybe been a bit more aware that a red flag is this secrecy. Maybe I would have realized the path I started to walk on was not a safe one that little bit sooner. Secrecy is something that you do because you feel like it protects you. You know, that like secrecy, it's this dichotomy in a way between desperately not wanting someone to take away the only thing you feel is helping you. So there's that desperation, that pain that I can't let anyone know I'm doing this because they may make me stop. And I don't want to stop because if I stop, I haven't got anything else to help me feel like I can exist. So I have to be secretive because I don't want people to stop me. And then there's the other side where you're desperate to stop, but you're so ashamed to ask for help. And it just becomes this roundabout thoughts of what to do. And it just continues. And all the while you're drinking and your drinking consumption increases because that's what happens. You know, that's not unique to me. That's the thing about alcohol. Once you start drinking, you become more immune to the effects of it. So your drinking quantities will increase. And, you know, it can happen literally to anybody. It is so easy to get caught in this cycle, this spiral. So what can we do? before we get caught in this web what can we do before before it goes too far how can we help ourselves how can we help each other since becoming sober and starting to work within spaces that offer support and training to employees and employers within hospitality I've created some methods that hopefully can help people question those motivations around their drinking consumption um, so the one I want to share with you today it's a really simple technique that you can do if you're worried about your drinking and I think if I'd asked myself these questions at the time and really thought about the way I was answering them perhaps I would have made different decisions. So it's just three questions. The first question I would have asked myself is where? Where am I drinking? Am I drinking socially with friends? Drinking in a pub or a bar with a meal? Am I with my family out in the open? Are we having a lovely discussion about the vintage of the wine, the great grape varietal? Are we enjoying a glass and a conversation in a social situation? Am I on a train having a gin and a tin at 11am? Am I sat at home alone having a glass of wine with a meal? Or have, maybe I'm having a glass of wine you know, while I'm winding down, watching the television? Or am I alone in my room drinking in solitude? Where am I when I'm drinking? Am I in the stockroom having a swig from a bottle of gin? Am I running to the toilets every half an hour where I've hidden a bottle? Where am I when I'm drinking? That's the first thing I would invite you to ask and I wish I'd asked myself. And I'd really invite you to think about if the place that you are drinking is the right place for you to be drinking. The next question is, when am I drinking? Am I drinking really late at night when I know I've only got a six hour window to get some good sleep in? Really, I should be going to bed opposed to sitting up and drinking. Am I drinking early in the day? You know, have I started drinking at lunchtime, maybe out with friends, having a few glasses, a couple of cocktails, but you know, I'm drinking quite early in the day and and then I'm going to stop. 
or, you know, I've got this huge day on tomorrow, really big, important day at work, but I'm going to have this bottle of wine regardless. I'm having it because I need it. Otherwise I can't go to sleep. Am I drinking in the morning before I go to work? Is it in fact the only thing I can do to get myself functioning because of my hangover, you know, that hair of the dog? So when am I drinking? And the last thing I would invite you to ask yourself is why? Why am I drinking? Am I drinking because I enjoy the taste of this cocktail? I'm with friends. I'm having a lovely time. We're all having a drink. It's lovely. It's social. It's fun. It's exciting. Am I drinking because I'm at this restaurant I've been desperate to go to and I'm with my family and it's a lovely occasion? Or, you know, maybe I'm drinking to celebrate a huge win at work and I'm proud of myself and I'm with family. Or maybe I'm even just celebrating at home on my own, you know, having a glass of fizz because I've done a great job. Or am I drinking because I'm really stressed out? Am I drinking because because I'm scared to be alone, because I'm feeling overwhelmed, because I'm feeling lost, because I just don't know what to do, because I'm really struggling with life, with work, maybe a relationship with, with friends. Why am I drinking? Now, the answer to these questions are not always going to be that clear cut. It's not always, you know, where am I drinking? In my bedroom alone. Why am I drinking? Because I feel overwhelmed. And, you know, when am I doing it? I'm doing it before bed. Otherwise I can't sleep. You know, that's a very obvious response to those questions that might make you consider your relationship with alcohol has come, become somewhat disordered. You might say, well, where am I drinking? I'm drinking out with friends. I'm having a great time. I'm drinking in the evening. I haven't got work the next day. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a few drinks. It's, you know, I haven't seen these people in years. We're having a great time together. Why not? But then when you ask yourself why you're having maybe three, four, five, six gin and tonics when everyone else is only having two, or why are you so eager to get to the bar for that next round when everybody else is still enjoying their first one? And what about bigger celebrations? So like you're on a stag do, you know, that's why I'm drinking so much because it's a stag do. Or are you using that as an excuse to drink more? Because actually what's really going on deep down is that you're really stressed. You've got a lot going on. You're not necessarily, you don't necessarily have that support in the workplace or maybe within your home, your relationships. And therefore you're drinking where you would have maybe had two or three glasses. It's escalated and suddenly you're waiting all week for that stag deal, that party. So you can just finally have that blowout and just, I can't wait to get to Friday. I just want to drink. I want to do drugs because I just can't wait to get away from my head, from my life, from my work situation. I think that's probably probably something a lot of us can really relate to. When we take that inquiry of those three questions a little bit more in depth, if we take the time to have that extra curiosity about our motivations for drinking and drug use, I think that's really key when it comes to making then the shifts, making behavioral changes. And that's effectively what we're doing when we're looking at either stopping drinking and drugs or reducing our drinking. It's all about behavioral change. And it's really, really difficult to make any kind of change in our behavior. If we haven't examined the reason why we're doing what we're doing in the first place, for me, by the end, the reason I was drinking to the excess that I was, was because I was completely and totally lost. And I felt like I had nothing and nothing to offer. And I didn't even know who I was anymore. And that there was nothing else available out there to help me. Um, you know, but the sad thing about that is obviously that that was not the case. I did have other options. I had friends, I had family. But the time 
it had got that bad. And by the time it gets that bad for a lot of people, it's too hard at that stage to reach out and see through the chaos of, you know, your own life to grab the hand that's reaching out. And really, a lot of what I've discussed today is actually why I set up We Recover Loudly and why I describe it as a call to action for those who are in recovery within our industry. We recover loudly so that others do not die quietly. It's a statement I've heard frequently in the rooms of AA. And the reason it resonates so hard for me is that secrets are the reason that people are dying quietly. Secrets, secrecy around drinking, shame, stigma, misunderstanding, lack of compassion, lack of signposting, lack of resources. But it's that dying quietly that really hits me hard. If I had seen people like me in the world out recovering loudly, showing that people in our industry and people, you know, just in life can choose not to drink, can choose not to do drugs and have a happy, productive, fulfilling, exciting life, then perhaps I wouldn't have let things go as far as they did. You know, recovering loudly doesn't mean I know what I'm doing every day of the week, nor does it mean I'm happy all the time. And it certainly doesn't mean that I have all the answers. And even though I choose to recover loudly now, it's taken months for me to feel comfortable doing so. And I do still carry a lot of shame and guilt on my shoulders. What recovering loudly has given me, it's given me this community and the connection that I was so desperately looking for all my life. So, you know, for me, it's worth that discomfort. And going to bed at night, I don't have any secrets anymore. Putting your head on the pillow, knowing that you've lived an honest day, that you haven't had to hide any part of yourself, you know, your personality, your perceived flaws, that you've been able to be open, authentic, respectful, useful, is one of the greatest, greatest gifts sobriety has given me. If you are somebody that's struggling with secrecy around drinking and drug use right now, or you feel that every day you're wearing that mask of everything's fine, everything's great, I'm amazing, I'm functioning, look at me go. But when you get home, and you take that mask off and the secrecy seeps in and your behavior is something that you feel you are losing control around, before you open that bottle, ask yourself those three questions. Where am I going to drink this? When am I going to drink this? And why am I going to drink this? We recover loudly so that others do not die quietly. If you're feeling trapped, if you're feeling lost, just pick up the phone, talk to somebody, get connected, get loud about your own recovery. And the great thing is not only will you help yourself, but what happens is this beautiful ripple effect. And every time you get loud about your own struggles and start to make changes and get better, those around you will also change. You know, you help so many people with this courage to be out and proud and loud about recovering. There are so many people out there that are suffering in silence that you are going to be able to connect with and help one day. They say that your story is the key to unlocking somebody else's unhappiness. It's so powerful when you can get to that stage of life, that stage of recovery, when you can do that. When it comes to conversations about addiction and recovery in hospitality, we need to get louder about it. We need to shake up these conversations at our workplace about addiction. We need to start talking to our employers about the drug and alcohol policies that we have in place. And if you need further support about how to facilitate those conversations, put that training in place, please do get in touch with us here at We Recover Loudly. All of the contact details are in the show notes or you can go directly to the website and there's a contact form there that you can fill in and one of us will get back to you.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you found this episode thought provoking and have taken away some useful tools for you to use in your own life or within your workplace. And if you are somebody who's feeling sick with their secrets, take this as your sign to reach out to get help because there's this incredible life out there for you and it's waiting for you and it's yours to grab. Thank you for tuning in to We Recover Loudly. Please stay tuned for future episodes, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn for more updates on at We Recover Loudly. If you are struggling with addiction and want to find support, please refer to the resources listed in the show notes or alternatively check out the website www.werecoveredloudly.com. If you would like to be a guest on the show, fill in contact sheet on the website and we will be in touch. We would love to hear from you and have you share your experiences here on the podcast. This podcast has been produced by the fabulous Podcast Boutique and hosted by me, Shell, recovering loudly so that others do not die quietly. Thank you. Hey!